Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast, specifically to the Where Stuff Comes From series. On this episode, I sit down with Fred Horowitz, who in my life is one of the people who I look to as a master of industrial innovation. He runs a medium-sized United States business. Mind you, small and medium-sized businesses make up the backbone, the vast majority of the United States industrial base. Fred Horowitz has over 30 years of active entrepreneurial experience covering most facets of building and growing companies, combined with critical understandings of branding, licensing, and retail sales channels. He has a broad and deep experience set in areas such as manufacturing, distribution, trademarks, asset finance, working capital management, real estate acquisition and disposal, social media and investor relations, Asian sourcing, that's a critical one for our conversation, and public company issues. He has also experienced in turnaround situations in both private and public companies. Right now, Fred is the chairman and CEO of AP Doville, a leading personal care company located in Easton, Pennsylvania. Doville owns and licenses a variety of brands such as Power Stick and Arm & Hammer. You might have seen these in your local supermarket, dollar store, etc. Doville competes in a broad range of personal care products for men and women in the categories such as antiperspirants, shampoo, soap, and body wash. I'll add in a note here that while we're going to cover quite a bit about antiperspirant sourcing in this conversation, the essence of that conversation is not necessarily about antiperspirant. It's about the incredible complexity and brilliance that goes into manufacturing low-cost, high-quality, affordable consumer goods for American consumers domestically in the United States. Fred has a wide range of experience in domestic United States-based manufacturing, and as I mentioned earlier in his bio, sourcing from Asian countries and elsewhere in the world. We spend time in this conversation diving into some of the sourcing issues that Fred has had at AP Deauville over the last 18 to 24 months, sourcing various components, commodities, etc., for his consumer products that he is mission-focused on delivering at an affordable price point to consumers across the United States. In addition to the timely and critical supply chain conversation that we have with Fred on this episode, Fred tells us a little bit more about his view on American manufacturing and sourcing from other countries, as well as tactical steps that he's taken and some of the difficulties that he's encountered in taking those steps to deploy innovation and technology to empower American manufacturing at his companies. One quick note before we hand it back to Fred and myself to dive into the conversation. The primary audio for this episode was a little bit off, so we went with our secondary and we went back around to re-record questions so that the audio would come through clean and clear for you, the listener. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Fred Horowitz. Welcome to the show, Fred. Thank you very much for coming on. Could you give us a sense, who is Fred Horowitz heading out of 2021 and heading into 2022? What are you working on? What are you excited about? And what is on the horizon for you as we enter the new year? Fantastic. So first of all, I think uh, I would start at the beginning, which is we're in 2021 and how blessed are we as human beings? I mean, there's been no better time to be alive in human history. So... Uh, we came off of, for our company and uh, for us, our greatest year was 2020. It was a record, incredible year. We make soap, among other things, hand soap, and we just couldn't make enough. And it was an amazing year. Um, and frankly, it was profitable, although for the world, it was misery. Um, but someone, as they say, has to do well at some point. Uh, and we feel we had a job and we gave affordable, uh, low-cost soap to, frankly, to America. Uh, and that's what we did, and we did it well. This year has been the exact opposite. We're facing probably our most difficult year ever uh, and challenging and mostly because of supply chain issues uh, related to some of the successes uh, that we navigated around last year. As far as a background, I'm the CEO of a company called AP Doville. I've been that for about 20 years. Before that, I uh, was the president of a laundry detergent company uh, that I had founded 
uh, that made a product called Extra, XTRA, which we grew in 10 years from zero to about a $300 million business and sold it to a company called Church and Dwight. We're Extra still today, one of the leading laundry brands in the country. So if you want to be clean, use Extra. It's fantastic. Uh, but after selling it, I wanted to stay in the consumer products business. I love things consumer. I love the value channel, uh, saving people money. Uh, there's no reason to pay more. And frankly, I just believe in fast penny businesses, not slow dollars. And manufacturing and the key to being successful in consumer products in a low-end business, I always felt was to self-manufacture. And that made me different. Uh, certainly 20 years ago when I bought a brand from Unilever called PowerStick, and we developed it into a whole bunch of other categories and built a, an antiperspirant and deodorant factory. Along later, we added uh, body wash and other items into that factory. Uh, it was, most people said we were out of our minds. Why aren't we going overseas? Why don't we do this in China or somewhere else? And we said, my view was, if you can keep the supply chain short, you can give much better customer service and the value will come you know, you'll just have to be smarter, faster than anyone overseas and figure it out. Uh, America has cheap energy, which is key to consumer products. That's one of the keys and cheap transportation. So if you have cheap plastic, which is driven by energy costs, and you have, which is what you need for bottles and packaging um, and efficient uh, transportation networks, we should still be able to compete with China in a highly automated business. And that's what we are. So you saw over the past 20 years, a lot of business that were not automated going to China, high touch from apparel, which is really a, a business of eaches. Think about how many sizes and colors are made for every kind of type of clothing that you buy. Whereas with us, we make tens of millions of the same unit. So we, can, we were able to compete effectively. And frankly, though, a lot of people chose to go overseas. And we really are one of the only uh, independent manufacturers in the personal care uh, space. And uh, we branched out to other items uh, from uh, creams and lotions, men's grooming. We launched a ladies line. We also licensed a couple of brands. One brand that we licensed, that means that we rent the name. And in this case, it's the name Arm & Hammer for the category of body wash. And we also rent it, so to speak. We license it for the category of pump soaps. And we just signed a license uh, a couple of weeks ago for two new brands, one called Joseph Abood and Anne Klein. So we both have our own brand, Power Stick, and Power Stick for her and other brands. We sell the mass market. We sell people ranging from Walmart to Dollar Tree, Dollar General, Family Dollar. Uh, we really look uh, from our Power Stick brand, we dominate the opening price point. Um, and we just make a lot of product. And you mentioned in your opening that uh, I'm a New Jersey titan of manufacturing. Ironically, uh, we left New Jersey, although I still live here. Okay. Uh, unfortunately for tax reasons, but uh, we left the state of New Jersey for Pennsylvania. So we now refer to ourselves as refugees from New Jersey. We've escaped this uh, regime of, uh, of this regulatory regime and tax regime of New Jersey uh, to the freedom that we have found in Pennsylvania in a place called Easton. And it's an extraordinary place to do business with a real rich manufacturing history, great people, and we've expanded our capacity. And that'll lead us to some of our other things I think you want to talk about, about American manufacturing. Thank you for that, Fred. So it looks like your made in the USA manufacturing operation paid dividends during the first part of the pandemic, where there was a ton of demand for products that you had the capital equipment to rapidly scale up to produce and meet the demand for. But now you're facing supply chain complications that many other business owners and manufacturers are facing and consumers as well. Uh, facing across the world, not just in the United States. So can you walk us through briefly how this is playing out for you and your business right now, how these supply chain issues are actively impacting your ability to manufacture and deliver your products to your consumers? So like many great, first of all, it's a great question, but like many good observations that sometimes people would make from a high level. Sounds great. Yeah, we're 100% manufactured in the United States, which is the truth until you dig in a little bit deeper. And then you look at our supply chain. So our supply chain, we import some components. Uh, we've totally pivoted away from China over the past, frankly, year and a half. Um, we had created dual sourcing for many items between 
China and other countries. So on one item, it's Turkey now, 100% versus China. On another item, it's South America versus China. Uh, but when you start to dig into your own supply chain, so our label manufacturers are all domestic label, manufacturer, label manufacturers, and they, uh, there was a glue crisis. And uh, apparently one of the components was coming from overseas and was in short supply, but everyone was getting this particular item out of China. So even though you think you have no Chinese exposure or issues of price increases uh, related to transportation or foreign issues, they can bite you when you least expect it. Mm -hmm. So when you think of a label in particular, so the, the printing may be done in the United States. The color mixing of the inks that are used may be done in the US, but the pigments may be coming from somewhere overseas and that can lead to issues and surprises, which we've all been navigating this year. Before we dive into the next question, and I want to move into where do these consumer hygiene products actually come from and digging deeper into the supply chains. But before that, a little yes end to your previous ditty. You mentioned that energy prices, energy availability is driving some of the price movement for the products that you're making. Uh, or for the components that you need to source to make the products. And for the listener, you might not think that energy is related to deodorant in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you're not rubbing gasoline under your armpits. But if you really trace it down, and I'm sure, Fred, that we'll get into this, if you don't have oil, a.k.a. hydrocarbons, carbon and hydrogen atoms that you can morph into jet fuel, you can morph into gasoline for your car, natural gas for your house, or polymers, for example. So if you can't make polymers because you don't have oil, which is basically energy when we talk about energy, we're talking about oil and gas effectively. If you don't have oil, you can't make the polymers for the plastic holder that holds the deodorant stick, and you can't make the packaging that the deodorant stick is transported in. And I'm sure, Fred, there's other fossil fuel-derived components in your products. Uh, likewise, if you don't have energy, you can't operate your operation or your manufacturing facility. On a previous episode of the podcast, we actually spoke to a gentleman named Mike Howard, who runs a large midstream energy company. We'll put the link to that episode in the description. And he broke down some of this where energy comes from and where it goes in a very tactical conversation on that episode. We also had a conversation with Shelly Huff, the CEO of Serta Simmons Mattresses, and I think they make bedding and whatnot as well. And she was explaining the glue problem that you just described, one of the key components in how they make their mattresses. <clears throat> They've also had a serious glue supply chain crunch. So it's interesting to hear from different industries about how some of these core supply chain price drivers are impacting your businesses and eventually the consumer. Uh, we're having lots of conversations about inflation and things like this right now, and this is really where all that comes from. And these raw materials, the way that their prices move, the availability of them, how they come out of the ground, how they're processed, that all impacts everybody from minor to manufacturer to consumer. So with all of that said, Fred, let's move into where all of these consumer hygiene products actually come from. So Fred, where does all of the stuff that you make come from? There are two ways to look at a consumer product. So the way we look at it is there's packaging and then there's the chemicals, chemistry. So the packaging is all domestic. So most of it is plastic, plastic resins, two types of resins, there's injection molded resins. And then there's high density. So injection is what is used in a cap, in a closure, we call them. Uh, it's of all of our bottles. And then it's also used in antiperspirant sticks are all injection molded. And actually, if you were to take apart your antiperspirant stick, it's very complicated. There are five parts to that thing. There's a screw, there's an elevator, there's a cap, there's an inner cap. Mm -hmm. uh, they get filled upside down, uh, which is why you get the nice little uh, roundness at the, at the top. Uh, think of a candle. It's a hot wax, basically, into which we put Aluminum, well, I'll get into the chemicals in a second. So we'll stick to the packaging. Uh, we have to buy a label, put the label on it, and then we put it in a corrugated box. And actually, before we do that, we shrink wrap each six-pack in plastic, and it goes through a heat tunnel where it gets shrink-wrapped. And in the meantime, by the way, they're codes. So inkjet codes are coded onto every product. This is an FDA 
registered items. So we have to be able to, God forbid, recall them uh, or track them. So there's special codes that we have to use. So every item gets uh, inkjetted. So it's as well as every case. So there's traceability. Um, and then it gets put onto a pallet. Uh, you have to buy a wood pallet. Then the pallet gets shrink-wrapped and it goes to a warehouse out the door. So as far as the chemicals, the chemistry behind it is one of the key ingredients in an antiperspirant. And let's go quickly into a deep dive of antiperspirant versus deodorant. Most people say, oh, I got my, my de- I have my deodorant. Are you wearing deodorant? Do you have deodorant? But most people, when they say the word deodorant, they really mean antiperspirant. That's the white stuff that stops you from sweating. But deodorant is actually a deodorant. It doesn't, it's not an antiperspirant. And you can buy deodorants, and those are made up from what's called propylene glycol is the main, and sodium stearate. Those are the main things in that stick. So it's fragrance, basically. And all it is really is a little fragrance. You're putting, this is something the French started doing, uh, you know, 400 years ago. You put a little fragrance on your arms and you smell good. Um, Sometimes you smell better. Some fragrances are better at masking odors than others, but that's what deodorant is. An antiperspirant, because of the nature of the aluminum zirconium, which is essentially a a type of, we call it a type of salt. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are different types of aluminum zirconium, sesquite, they're different types, but at the end of the day, that active ingredient stops you from sweating probably 50%, uh, and maybe a little higher. And it's significant, it's noticeable, and it also, because of the nature of the product, it stops odor, it kills odor, and then you layer on some fragrance into it so you smell nice regardless. So that's an antiperspirant. The main chemical in there, other than the active ingredient, is aluminum zirconium, and the carrier that's used uh, is a product called, it's a silicone product called D5. Um, I don't quite remember the exact name of it, but that is a silicone-based product and in particular, right now, that product is in a major global crisis. Mm-hmm. In fact, beyond anything it's I've ever what, seen. 300, 400 percent, I think. Yes. I was looking at the uh, data. It's, it's up over 400, maybe 500% oh, right wow. now. It's crazy. In literally force majeure. And this is driven uh, by, uh, and we can get into what dri- what's driving all of these items to go up, because I really do have, yes, a, the- yes. I have a theory on that. But in particular, silicone. Uh, the raw material that is used to make the silicone, a lot of it was being processed initially. A lot of chemicals get processed. There's a pre-process, and then there's a next step, and a next step, and then a final step. And some of the pre-processing can be pretty nasty. And that is being done. A lot of it was being done in China. Some of it was Sorry. being done. Quick question here, Fred. For the listener, what do you mean pre-processed? So these raw materials come out of the ground, and then what? So you might, in order to get a silicone, you need a, literally there's mining that goes on to get where you have to crush rock, you have to crush sand, you have to crush certain things uh, in order to get the chemical, in order to get something that can then be further processed. And the process of doing that is quite dirty and America doesn't have it. We've closed our silicone mines, so they don't exist because we outsource a lot of our pollution over the past 40 years to our friends in China. So by outsourcing it, now some of it's done in Western China and the word Uyghur comes up and suddenly that's a region that certain companies aren't supposed to import from and therefore it's being blocked. So we lost some of the global, global capacity was essentially taken off the market due to some American political decisions. I won't get into right or wrong, I'm just saying that's the market. Just a quick clarification and ask for more detail. We definitely don't have the time and space to dive deeper into this here, but if you could just give, from your perspective, uh, a quick overview on the Weiger, Uyghur, I never say it right, uh, population and how the conversation around what's going on and the persecution that that group's facing relates to your supply chain and other small business supply chains and large business, just manufacturing supply chains in general in the United States and around the world. Ah, so we're just referring to a, a group of people in China who are being frankly oppressed by the Chinese government and the US government has taken a position regarding human rights that uh, American companies should not be buying from companies in China that are potentially using forced labor and not even potentially, that are using forced labor. (laughs) There's no ifs, ands, or buts. And I think that, um, so that took some capacity off the market. And then for other pollution reasons in China, they took some other capacity off the market. And then on top of it, a major American 
processing facility for another level of product, so another level of the processing in upstate New York, a company uh, called Momentive, shut down some of its processing. It used to be a company, it used to be called GE Silicon. Are they a mining company or just a processing company? No, they are just now processing some of these materials. And they took their product, they, they're shutting down their plant because it's a polluting facility. Mm -hmm. And they just couldn't, it wasn't worth investing in to take it up to the standards demanded by either the state of New York or the federal government. And what's the timeline there? What year did they stop producing? They just, I believe they just announced that they're stopping. Either they did stop or they are stopping. This is a now kind of problem. And did they announce that they were stopping production while commodity prices were going up or prior to the spike in commodity prices that we're seeing right now? Uh, neither. I think it's as they were coming up, but that everyone knew they were, this was going to, this is, this was no secret okay. <laughs> that they were going to be, uh, there were going to be issues uh, around this particular facility. Is the facility shutting down completely or are they liquidating the capital equipment and someone else is going to use it to stand up another plant? No, I believe it's uh, being shut down. And uh, although they may keep parts of it open because they have a lot of other things going on there that may not be directly related to this item. But the real issue is globally, silicone at the end of the day is an incredible short supply. And whether it's the silicones that are used, and silicone is like one of the magic wonder chemicals. Uh, and I would urge you to have someone from the silicone industry maybe come as on your podcast oh, because silicone really is one of those items. You don't think about it, but it's used in antiperspirants. Mm -hmm. And it's also used in uh, caulking mm -hmm. from buildings. It's used uh, when you put a windshield at a car factory. Mm -hmm. You know, they're using their silicone that is used as well as the most shorted item right now, silicone chips. Mm -hmm. So silicone being in short supply is not good for the world and the global economy. Mm -hmm. So some of that though is because people made decisions. These aren't, it didn't just happen. Beijing wants to control pollution. The US wants to make sure that we're on the right side of human rights issues. And there's a price, you know, it's a tax in a sense. The price goes up because decisions were made and think of it as a tax. That's just, no one called it a tax, but that's what's happened. Now, if you are making antiperspirants and suddenly your core ingredient goes up 500%, now what do you do? That's the real question that someone like, like I have to deal with every day. And it's a problem. It's not even, it's, it's not like, oh, I'll make two pennies less. I'll get by. It'll be fine. This is I'm, I'm going to hemorrhage cash if I don't solve this problem fast mm -hmm. because the increase came on one day's notice. It was through what's called a force majeure letter where a company called Dow, um, along with others, has announced uh, what's called force majeure, which means they can break any contract and the prices went through the roof. So what we had to do is immediately tell our customers we're going to shrink the sizes um, and we're going to have to raise prices. Um, and that's something just to keep the product in the market. So we're in those discussions as we speak. Uh, and they're very difficult discussions because, again, we deal with retailers who can't raise their price points. So how do you walk, you know, you're taking money right out of their pocket. If on certain items, most of our customers sell their items at $1. So, and they can't go above the $1 price point. So it's a very tricky situation. So that's antiperspirants. Now on deodorants, there's a thing called, an item called propylene glycol. That's the main chemical. And that item is made in the Gulf. Uh, it's produced. Propylene glycol is one of the chemicals that you come into contact most, probably when you're flying out of Newark, in your case, or O'Hare, and it's the winter and they're de-icing your plane, they're de-icing it with propylene glycol. And essentially think of it as antifreeze. So that chemical is cyclical. It goes up a lot in the winter, comes down in the summer traditionally. But this year, because of the hurricanes and from last year's yes. historic ice storm, um, the, the, the production supply chain's gotten crushed. But I do think there's an overall, there's a larger issue here, which is that, and it comes and it's driven by COVID. When COVID broke, the whole world, uh, frankly, took a, a pause. All supply chains essentially had to stop. And it made most people realize that just in time, having three days inventory, two days inventory, one day's inventory, no one had 30 days inventory of your raw materials, uh, you shut down your plant. And what came out of it is within six months to a year, everyone sat as their goal for 2021. We're going to stop with the just in time because the world is too fragile. And if you want to look at the big picture, whether there could be a problem in Taiwan, a problem in Iran, another COVID, uh, COVID-21, whatever it may be, running, the world is riskier than people 
assumed, and therefore a smart company needs to keep some buffer stock. But everyone decided this on the same day, mm-hmm. as humans do. Uh, it's just companies either, it's households too. Right, households with their toilet paper, uh, and uh, but companies too in a much larger way. So now if a company increases its inventory of, let's just take an example, uh, the plastic companies that supply us our bottles, and they say, okay, instead of two days worth of resin sitting in our system, we're just going to go to 15 days. Forget 30 days. We're just going to go to 15 days. Well, you're talking about increasing their inventory seven times. Those seven, those extra days uh, have to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if you take, whether it's 15 days of raw materials or 30 days of certain raw materials that every company is adding into its warehouses, mm-hmm. suddenly... Uh, where you're looking at the world needing a 13th month in order to stay productive uh, and to stay in stock. And I think that's what everyone's really struggling with right now is we're all building inventories and we're still not caught up to where our inventory levels are good. Plus, right now, the risk aversion people are in charge of the business, are making the decisions. In another year or two, it'll come back to the balance sheet. People are going to say, gee, look at all that cash sitting in the balance sheet in a warehouse. Let's start, you know what, instead of 30 days, let's go to 20 days. And suddenly when that plastic company goes from 15 days of resin back down to, let's just say not to two days, but to seven days sitting on a side, you know, at the side of their uh, factory, um, they're going to take a week where they're not going to purchase any resin. And then the price of resin will come down. Mm -hmm. So I think we're just in one of those crazy moments um, that we are just all going to have to figure it out. And it's a crisis, but you have to look at crises as also opportunities. What can we do? What can businesses do? What can manufacturers do to avoid this supply chain disruption into the future? What lessons can we learn from this go around moving forward? How can we make our industrial system, how can we as business operators make decisions that make our industrial system and the ecosystem around producing the goods we need to run our lives, how can we make those systems more anti-fragile and less susceptible to black swan events, both Nassim Taleb's concepts, anti-fragility and black swan events, um, that totally derail a company's ability to operate when that company finds itself in uncertain or disrupted times on a global ecosystem-wide level. What, in your opinion, can we do? What can we learn from this go-around? Well, first of all, I don't think things are all, I mean, things are crumbling, but some people are managing to crumble less than others. (laughs) So I think the one thing you don't do is get government involved. I think Adam Smith, you know, prices are going to go up, and then you start to destroy demand. So instead of, uh, you know, let's say instead of, uh, a bottle, you know, we're looking at lightweighting plastic bottles. Plastic's gone up. So instead of, let's say, 23 grams for a bottle, we take the bottle down to 20 grams. So we take out maybe a little more than 10% of the plastic out of the bottle. Well, if every manufacturer in this country takes out 10% out of their plastic bottles, the country's using 10% less resin for plastic bottles, that will start to impact the supply. So Adam Smith, there'll be more product in the market, prices will come down. So Adam Smith is alive and well. Um, they're just these very uncomfortable, difficult moments. And, but it drives change. It drives what it's driving right now. I think the most interesting one is that people are understanding it's time it, to manufacture in America. There's no reason not to. Uh, as long as you're in a highly automated industry. If you are in what's called a job shop, a place that needs a lot of labor, then you have different issues and maybe America is good depending on the price, on the value chain of what your job shop is offering. But those are the kind of things that still will do well better overseas with very cheap labor. There's definitely quite a lot to consider with these sourcing decisions. The labor component is a huge driver as we learned on a previous episode from Shelly Huff. Again, I mentioned her earlier uh, in our conversation and Shelly was diving deep into some of the labor shortage challenges that she's had to navigate since coming on to her team at Serta Simmons. But they are a very labor-intensive process, the manufacturers in the United States. 
And they do that because beyond labor, their mattresses are these big bulky items. It doesn't necessarily make sense to ship them overseas. And there's some other considerations as well with regards to how their supply chain looks, how they're sourcing, how they're distributing, etc. One other piece of the puzzle might be something like how patriotic are you and are you focusing on building made in America products and that's your mission. Uh, along those lines, if it's okay with you, I'd love to read an excerpt from a blog post that I put out about this concept of net present flourishing, kind of like the net present value of your human flourishing and your ability to sustain that level of human flourishing far into the future. So it applies a discount rate to the esoteric concept of net human flourishing. So let me read this blog post to you and I am curious to hear your thoughts as it relates to this consideration of how are we making sourcing decisions to make ourselves more anti-fragile in the face of whatever the world might throw at us. So this comes from a blog post that I published that I titled On Freedom, Communism, and Where Stuff Comes From. There's an adage we used in my work with the tech world that if you are not paying for it, you're not the customer, you're the product being sold. So think about social media where you're not actually paying for social media, there are ads being sold and you are the customer because those ads are being marketed to you. What this, what this phrase or this, this adage does not fully capture is that if you are paying for a product but not paying the true price for that product, for example, as we talked about earlier, if you are paying for the product that is subsidized by Weiger, Uyghur, Muslim slave labor, then you are still in part the product. In the case of products sourced with human rights violations, you are compromising your code of ethics and morals. Your code of ethics and morals is the product. Alternatively, the part of you that is the product might be your net future flourishing. I claim coinage for this term, building on Alex Epstein's teaching about human flourishing. Let's define net future flourishing as the net present value of your future flourishing in dollars or in happiness. To illustrate, let's say a government, a communist government, for example, gives geopolitically motivated subsidies to companies to make a certain set of widgets in their country. Said government does so to create a single point of stuff chain failure that said government owns and can pull the lever on at any time to shut down industries that depend on those widgets either in their country or in adversarial countries. Assuming that these widgets help you and don't harm you, the result of this predatory government subsidy is that your future ability to access those widgets and the net future flourishing gain from said widgets is less. Your net future flourishing is therefore the product. So with that on the table, Fred, here's the question. How do you think about some of these more meta and macro considerations, be they geopolitics or some other force? ethics, morality, etc. How do you view how you optimize for flourishing now and into the future for your business and your customers? I don't know. That's a tough, I mean, you know, it's really the pursuit of liberty and happiness. Uh, I think someone got to it before you in terms of flourishing. But, uh, yeah, John Adams. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, I think businesses and as individuals, we have to find, um, you know, your, your business has to you have to have a purpose. There has to be a greater purpose for a business. And if you can achieve that greater purpose, um, and it can't just be making money, there has to be something else driving it, um, then you have something that is going to flourish and is flourishing in the sense I think you defined it. Mm -hmm. So for us, our greater purpose has always been to bring value to the middle and lower um, middle class of this country. And it's, we just aimed, and that was our mission. It was very narrow. I mean, at the end of the day, no one sells the bottom half of America. They just don't aim, you know, you don't graduate from Harvard Business School saying, hey, I'm gonna go sell poor people. But that's what we do. And we do it for two reasons. One, we just think there's an opportunity there to give great value. And the other thing is most of the Harvard MBAs aren't there. So you're competing in an easier field. So I think 
from a greater purpose point of view, we as a company are so committed to giving real value to the American consumer so that why should they pay more when maybe it might just save them a night out at a movie, it might pay for one month's worth of Netflix, but you know what? We gave the consumers an, a, an incredible product at a better price. And our organization is driven that way. Um, and I think that, you know, we, to do it, we made the decision we have to be domestic. And by the way, we do source certain items overseas. I mean, our aerosol products, we source overseas. It's not a, it's not a religion, <laughs> but the, prime, the majority of what we do is domestic and we flourished. Some years better than others, some years we don't flourish. Uh, but in general, we keep moving forward um, and finding some new opportunities. And I think uh, what's, if, if you have that kind of greater, if you have a vision like that and it's communicated well to your team, uh, it, it gives you the resilience to survive moments uh, like today. And you talked about the labor uh, issues. Uh, I think that there's some real labor dynamics that were unleashed by COVID that none, none of us really have our arms around. I mean, one, the amount of cash that was given to employees uh, to disincentivize work uh, is really, uh, it's staggering. And I don't think people have really understood, not too many people understood the damage that it, it caused. And forget the mattress people, there isn't a company, I mean, every company I speak to, every person in the supply chain, that's the number one issue, they can't get people. And they can't get people not at $15 an hour, not at $20 an hour, and even at $30 an hour. There's, there's just a lack of people coming back to the workforce because there's been an incentive, essentially, or a disincentive to go to work. And there's been so much money that it's gonna take a while to clear that out of the system. And it'll clear. Uh, the other thing is when you let in a million new immigrants, at some point they're coming to work. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna go work, they wanna work. They didn't come to America just to get a handout. Uh, they are coming to work and they'll figure it out. And they make it the handout and work on the side. But there will be, there are uh, a lot of new employees coming into the marketplace, uh, which is good for the country. Um, and it's, but the labor issue, I, we're struggling still to understand it. Um, and I don't have an, I wish I had a good answer to tell you, oh, in three more months, uh, all the labor will be back. I think there's been some fundamental changes uh, to how people see work or how they want to work. I've been visiting quite a handful of manufacturing companies. They might be suppliers for businesses that we're affiliated with, or they might be random companies that we want to go see for the Where Stuff Comes From theme and the podcast, blog, etc. And one of the visits that we did a few weeks ago, we were wrapping up. It was a company that that injection molds components for us. Sorry, they actually rotational mold. Very interesting manufacturing process. I'm going to avoid squirreling and going down the rabbit hole on that right now. They make rotation molded plastic components for us. And we're wrapping up. We're sitting in their conference room. And throughout the tour, they had been talking about how they have no labor problems. We were asking about it because we needed to check the box for our supplier scorecarding that they were good to go on their labor. If not, we need to you know, have some contingency planning and do some vulnerability assessments and all of that fun stuff. Regardless, we were sitting in their conference room as we were wrapping up our visit. And I look out the window and I see a train. Now I had to get into Manhattan. They were located in Long Island. And I was actively looking for how I was going to go get back into Manhattan. We had driven and I was not going to be participating in the drive back. So I look out the window, I see this train. I'm like, is that the LIR, the Long Island Railroad? And the folks who run the company said, yeah, it is. And I said, that's very interesting. Made a mental note. And I found it fascinating that this company located themselves right next to the LIR. They made it exceptionally easy for people to get to work. And they had a great work environment, great work culture. They marketed that work culture. And they had no problems recruiting labor. So if you make it easy for people to get to work and you create an environment where people want to work, that might be one solution to the labor shortage. Anywho, there was just one observation about labor shortage that I've encountered over the last few weeks, months. Well, I think that's another thing uh, that you spoke about. So what can we do? You know, some of, some of the big issues to get through this time. 
Uh, and I said, you don't need a lot of government. But one of the things is public transportation is something that for working class Americans has always been a struggle to get them to the place of work from where they live. Mm -hmm. So that's always been a big issue. And I can guarantee you, had we been in a place, uh, I know we had much, we didn't have great labor issues when we were in a town called New Brunswick. Um, but now in Easton, we are facing tougher hiring issues. And part of it is definitely because it's harder to get to our facility. You need a car. And uh, any roadblock you put to uh, working Americans is going to make it, they may just take a job closer to their home, walking distance, biking distance. And, but you're absolutely right. There are, and that, as I said earlier to you, I think before we started speaking on, on, um, on the air, is that we're, certain companies are going to do really well out of all of this. And they're going to be those who pivot the right way and, you know, who redevelop their supply chains and just figure it out much better than others. And a crisis, you ask about crises, you know, they're, they're incredible opportunities. And that's how we, you know, everyone, we all have to look at it. And that means for us, we're automating left, right, and center. So when we moved from our New Jersey facility, it was also with a multi, multi-million dollar upgrade in equipment so that we could grow and keep approximately that we could double the business, but keep the same number of employees. So I can tell you that with the cost of capital so cheap, um, one of the major things American businesses are doing is investing in technology every day, new equipment, new machinery. And that's why it's very, the lead times on equipment have gone through the roof uh, because they're trying to get rid of the need for jobs. And that's something that will probably have an effect maybe in two years, three years. Um, and it will, the entry level jobs, uh, will, there will be a lot less entry level jobs in manufacturing uh, than there were 30 years ago. There'll be a lot more technical jobs in manufacturing, higher skilled mechanics, higher skilled line operators, line operators with college degrees or with engineering degrees because the machines are so complicated. These are machines that are half the size of your house. I mean, that's the kind of things when you go into a modern blow molding facility. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different world. It's not what people kind of imagine maybe from an I Love Lucy uh, episode uh, 40 years ago. Well, now that's a rabbit hole that I am excited to go down. Could you talk a little bit and speak to what it was like to stand up more automated, I don't want to say fully automated, but more automated and labor augmented lines in your factories and in your facility? What it looked to, like to capitalize that equipment? If you could maybe walk us through some of the economics, that would be pretty cool. We have a lot of business owners who listen to this podcast who I'm sure this information would be very relevant to as they're working through and navigating the labor shortage, just to get an idea of what the economics of moving their lines and business processes over to physical automation with capital equipment? Well, first of all, like anything in life, you have to have a good plan and you have to do a lot of homework. And if you have a good plan, uh, now you start to look, there are two parts of it, financing it and actually managing it. So the finance piece is easier. There's plenty of equipment financing in this country and it's very cheap. Um, on a global basis. And it's simple to get. It's really not hard to get. Uh, certainly for new equipment, to do a five-year lease or a five-year buyout, whatever it may be, even seven years, depending on your, um, you know, how your DNB looks or how your, uh, your balance sheet looks. Uh, but the real difficulty is once you buy the equipment and you pick it out is installing it. So whatever you think the piece of equipment costs, so let's say it's a half million dollar piece of equipment, you need to budget another $100,000, at least 20% of the cost to install it and then get it up and running the right way. Because with us, we have a line, but it may have seven or eight pieces of equipment on it. Maybe even more like 10, if you include little printers that inkjet coders, things like that. And tying those all together, you know, you can get your, uh, filler to work, but is the capper working? If the cappers and the filler are working, is the case packer working? If the case capper is working, is the palletizer working? So for us, very complicated getting them all working at the same time. So that's something that when you do these projects, you then have to make sure your team is right. Do you have the right mechanical support? Do you have the right uh, maintenance team? Are you going to maintain the equipment the right way? You've bought this new shiny Lamborghini and are you going to make sure you use the right oil in it? Or are you going to screw it up? Are you going to clean it the right way? And are your people trained? Are you going to invest in the training? So 
when you do things like this, you have to really look from a, from a bigger level. Uh, we've succeeded in some places and we failed on a bunch of them. Uh, it's really hard. Uh, we've, and we've had lines, we had a line in New Brunswick that was brand new. It cost a couple million dollars and it ran, but it cost us probably another, probably cost us another million of excess labor, messes, change parts, this, fixing it, just not getting it up and running. And finally we got it up and running about after about a year. And then when we moved it to Easton and it became what we call a straight line, not a curving line uh, or a U-shaped line, it slowly started to run much better. But even that took six months to, to dial it in. So when you do new equipment and automation, it's fantastic, but just assume it's gonna take a long time to get it right. So if you think it's gonna take three months, it's gonna take six months. If you think it's gonna take six months, give yourself a year and budget it and talk to people, talk to your partners about it, whether the partners, the bank, your vendors uh, and your uh, even your customers, you know, that there may be struggles, but it's worth it. At the end of the day, you have to look at that, that if you can save five people on the line and they're each making, let's say with overtime, $40,000 um, plus the unintended slip and fall lawsuit that you avoided, then it was a brilliant investment no matter how you look at it. And where does the capital equipment that makes this stuff come from? So it comes from all over. Um, you know, in our business, the best fillers are, uh, it's a company called Cazzoli, right? Italian fillers. The Italians in the packaging industry are legendary, fantastic equipment, very expensive. Uh, they're definitely the Rolls Royces. Uh, then you have uh, domestic American equipment. Uh, our cappers are domestic. There are a lot of domestic manufacturers. But what's happened is people are using different components and mixing and matching. So the frame may have been made in China shipped to the US where the electronics are put on. So nothing is really always what it seems. Mm -hmm. And then you now have Chinese equipment that's terrific. Uh, five years ago, I would not buy a Chinese piece of equipment. We just, there was no way. Is that because of security concerns or because of quality concerns? Quality, there's no, in our business, it's not, I'm not worried about, you know, the antiperspirants. I don't believe that's gonna be in the, in the PLA's uh, in the Chinese yeah, armies, microchips they're not worried about uh, antiperspirant production in the United States, nor shampoo. So we don't have to worry about a massive Schwitzing bio attack? Bio exactly, attack. a smell attack. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't for security. It was really simply that the quality wasn't there. And in five years, I can tell you the quality has gone incredible. And now our tube fillers that we have bought, we've bought two brand new tube fillers from China frankly, are the two best running pieces of equipment I have. Mm. This equipment is, uh, it's got longevity. It's been great. Uh, you know, as everything with China, you have to ask for exactly what you want. Because uh, if you don't, you're going to get whatever someone else wants. So if you're very clear, you get it. If you're not and you leave any openings, then something will happen. But if you have a, a, a middle person, a vendor, a, a, you know, an agent in the middle on, on the equipment who's representing that Chinese factory, and they've been in the American market long enough, with the parts and with the supply and with the, more importantly, the service, uh, they already know like what games they can, cannot play and the longevity issues. So China's in a whole new world. Uh, there's no question their equipment is, uh, it's, it's, it can be top notch. And now this equipment uses some European components for the electronics. So this is again, a mix and match kind of equipment. So I think there's a lot of that um, and, and these, this equipment was significantly probably a quarter of the cost of a brand new European machine. So it was worth it to do it. And uh, we'll buy a third one from Asia. There's no question. How does it work with maintaining and changing or modifying these systems? Do you need to have someone from your equipment suppliers team to make changes, maintain, modify, etc. the equipment? Or do you have someone on your staff, on your payroll, whose job it is to maintain update, uh, modify these systems? Or is there a third party involved? Or w what does the maintenance process look like and who's responsible for that? So we do both. We will have our in-house team as well as most manufacturers, most will have their tech, their, their, uh, it's a tech called, it's called a tech. And they'll come in and they'll teach your techs what to do, or they might do a particular piece of maintenance that's above the level of someone uh, in our facility because it demands a certain expertise. Uh, even a thing like a palletizer, which is a machine that takes boxes and creates a pallet, uh, which is what ships to into a warehouse, into a store. Uh, those pallets and the technology around creating the different configurations, if it only did one configuration all day long, that would be easy to set up. 
But when you need to be flexible, because on Monday you're running uh, a green product uh, that's uh, a certain size, and on Tuesday it's a different item, the palette sizes, uh, the palette structures change, so you have to program things. It's very complicated. So sometimes when things go wrong with that, you might need a technician to come in. I mean, obviously the next phase, and we've seen it in some of our suppliers, uh, we've not moved there, but where the machines not only talk to each other, but the machines talk to a headquarters maintenance team. So one of our large suppliers has about 180 bottle facilities around the world. They have a central maintenance center that's uh, manned 24 seven, you know, 365 days a year. And if a machine goes down in their Bethlehem, Pennsylvania plant, the alarm bells go off somewhere in Austria. And not only that, but there's an engineer there to assist the team in uh, Pennsylvania. And they'll even use uh, certain visual technology to make sure to guide that maintenance person on the ground, but they're guiding them from overseas. So that's like the next level of what's gonna happen with any kind of machine tech support. But we're, um, you know, we're, it's a very comp, we have probably over a hundred different pieces of equipment in our facility, if not more, uh, that it's, it's complicated. But again, these are barriers to entry. The more complicated, the, uh, the harder it is for people to compete with you. So that's a whole nother angle as to uh, why I like manufacturing. Well, Fred, we are coming up on the end of our time together. So as we begin to wrap up, I'll ask you, are there any concluding thoughts, additional thoughts, or calls to action that you have for the audience? You can find me at uh, Fred Horowitz at apdoville.com. You can find me in Easton, Pennsylvania. Please come visit. And uh, But I would love to end with uh, what I opened with, which was uh, that you asked me how I am. You know, there's no better time to be a human than in 2021. And frankly, there's no better time to be an entrepreneur and a manufacturer than this year. It's difficult. But again, there are opportunities all over the place. And you just have to have an incredible attitude and be keep asking questions uh, and even listening to podcasts, getting ideas that can challenge you. And maybe just you'll get some spark uh, that leads you to a way to be successful, even in this stressful time. Cool. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Fred. I greatly appreciate it. This was a highly actionable and action-packed conversation giving a very unique perspective on the state of industry and manufacturing in the United States and around the world. It was a pleasure to learn about your business. Thank you again for coming on, and we will have to have you back soon. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Frontier podcast. I hope that you'll join us for the next episode. If you'd like to learn more, share this content, or dig deeper into our library, head on over to the nextfrontierpodcast.com. That's nextfrontierpodcast.com.